Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of You're Wrong with me, David Harsani, and Molly Hemingway. How are you, Molly? Great. Great to be here with you. Always great. This week, I think we should start off um, talking about the abortion issue. I, I have two different topics with it, subtopics within that issue to talk about. I think okay. we should start with <laughs> Lindsey Graham's uh, 15-week ban, federal ban bill that he put forward this week. Uh, and I'll just prompt you by saying I think that right off the bat, you saw a lot of cowardly Republicans doing what they always do on this issue, allowing the left, allowing polls to drive them to back off of the issue, to not push their own, not, not only not to push their own position on it, which is very reasonable and moderate, frankly, but also fail to push Democrats to defend their position, which is the extremist maximalist position on abortion. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to watch Republicans snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And we had this ruling in June, the Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe v. Wade after 50 years, nearly 50 years. That Roe v. Wade ruling was widely understood to be a horrible ruling that was not based in the Constitution. I mean, even people who are radically pro-abortion, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, criticized the ruling as not being strong. And you had an entire movement built up over 50 years to get justices confirmed to the Supreme Court who would uphold the Constitution. And they did so in Dobbs. It was a huge unalloyed victory for the pro-life movement, which forms a big chunk of the base of the Republican Party. And there's always been this criticism of Republican politicians that they didn't actually want to do anything good related to abortion. They just really appreciated that pro-lifers would come out and vote for them. And you got a sense of that this summer when they didn't quite know what to do with this victory. It was like they were so used to not accomplishing big victories for their base that they just didn't know how to handle it. And then at the same time, you have a radical pro-abortion movement that completely controls corporate media and has for decades. And other Democrat activists who set about trying to exploit this issue as a political winner, which required a little bit of lying about extremism. So under the Roe regime, you couldn't really have reasonable restrictions on abortion or any restrictions on abortion, um, even though like much of the Western world, much of the civilized world uh, all over the world has the type of restriction like what we saw with Senator Lindsey Graham's bill um, of of banning abortion after 15 weeks, which is at the point at which an unborn child feels pain when the abortion is committed. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I just quickly want to say there are only two countries in all of Europe that are more permissive on abortion than this Republican bill would be, and that's Sweden and the Netherlands. The Netherlands, where they kill, like, there's basically they kill people for any reason, you know, old or young. But um, only those two nations, every other nation, France, Germany, Spain, East, all the Eastern European nations have stricter um, guidelines on, on abortion, probably 14 to 12 weeks. And regardless of what people's views on abortion are, I mean, some people are for a complete ban. Some people are just for bans in later trimesters. 
it's an incredibly popular idea with the public to have some level of restriction. Like the vast majority of people support some restriction. And yet somehow Republicans allowed the media and other Democrats to frame them as being radical. And so then you have this opportunity. Nobody thinks that that even if this bill passed, that nobody thinks the bill would pass or that if it passed, Joe Biden would sign it. So it's clearly like just an opportunity to fight back against some of this propaganda that's been coming out. And even then, these loser Republicans were freaking out about the opportunity to defend their position and position it as less as far less extreme than what the Democrat Party is pushing for. Yeah, I have a a bunch of things to say I'm going to forget. But first of all, it allows Republicans to have a national federal position that they can turn to in races, statewide races. So you don't have the people who want complete bans defining the Republican Party. Now, frankly, I'm for a complete ban. I'm for incrementalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that's fine. But listen, the political you know, environment is what it is. And you have to work towards these things that they don't happen overnight. But since the 1960s, the well, here's the thing. First of all, I don't like stunt bills like this typically, but Democrats use them all the time to try to get Republicans on the record, you know, as extremists and, and so on. So because the media will almost never ask a Democrat, what is your to defend their position on abortion or even define their position on abortion? This is one of the only ways that Republicans have to try to get the, you know, get that information out to the public. So I don't understand why McConnell and, and, you know, I'm, you're, I think you're tougher on these people than I am usually, but when it comes to abortion, they're just complete cowards. We knew as soon as the the court took the Mississippi case that to some level Roe was going to either be, you know, weakened or overturned. And yet there is no national plan plan to deal with this at all. I think that, The criticism of this bill, if you wanted to offer criticism, is that it's way too weak, way too weak for the pro-life movement. I mean, the pro-life movement is a movement like the abolition movement that is like an important, they, they represent like people who care about really important moral issues. The the base of the party actually would like to see far more protections for unborn children from the violence of abortion, far more protections for women who are vulnerable to abortion. They would like to see much more than this like measly, like this like totally weak 15 week ban. So if you're going to criticize it rather than criticize it, like I wish the Republicans who, who were being critical of this were saying it's, fine but it's nowhere near good enough and instead they're like we'd rather talk about inflation today well i mean inflation is important inflation is something you should talk about every day it's a top issue for voters as well but there's no inability to tackle more than one issue at once now as you mentioned 15-week bans are quite popular in polling and it allows republicans to say listen it allows a Republican in Oklahoma to say, listen, I, it's a good start. I think we can do better than 15 weeks. And it right. allows someone in, you know, a Virginia suburb to say, you know, 15 weeks is, is reasonable. Most people agree with it. By so the way, I, you, say, I, I, you say Virginia suburb. Glenn Youngkin put forth a 15 week ban, I believe, as soon as Dobbs 
what came out. And I mean, Virginia is not a Virginia is really a blue state that just happens to have gotten three statewide Republicans in the last year. But the, and it's actually a, I'm sorry, it's actually a very I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's actually a very good example of how a conservative can win a race being a conservative by calling out the extremism of the left rather than just playing defense all the time on social issues. So I do want to point out because I was at the SBA list gala last night, which is a massive pro-life group um, that helps so many politicians, including Glenn Youngkin spoke and thanked SBA list for giving him early support uh, as he was running. The in, the entire focus of the campaign against him run by Terry McAuliffe, who, you know, was not, a, he ran a bad campaign, but when he was, when he became the nominee, you had no reason to think it would be a bad campaign. He's pretty much like the ideal Democrat to put forward very establishment for, for the uh, Northern Virginia base of the Democrat party. And his entire campaign was to try to tar Glenn Youngkin with the Texas legislation that restricted abortion after a heartbeat can be detected. That was the entire campaign. I live in Virginia. I saw it on the airwaves constantly. All of the mailers were about it. All of the uh, fake grassroots targeting was about it. And Glenn Youngkin still won. And so it also shows that even in a very blue state with a solid Democrat nominee, you can run on this issue and win and you can make some gains. And I mean, it wasn't just that. Glenn Youngkin, I think a lot of conservatives would like him to be far stronger, but he even did something where he he changed an office that was supposedly for DEI to emphasize that among the groups, among the vulnerable groups that the person who held that office had to care for included unborn children. You know, he's looking for opportunities to advance this issue in ways that are very difficult to fight politically. Yeah, I mean, I support any abortion law that can pass. (laughs) That's what I support. And I think that's the way to, this is how the left moves forward on socialized medicine or whatever you know issue they have. And this is Ooh. the way, the reality of, of how you move forward on, on an issue like this. Yeah. Here's the thing though. You heard a lot of people, like a lot of reasonable people who have been sort of gaslit or bullied by the propaganda press and other Democrats saying like, we just shouldn't talk about this issue. Like we have to, they're going to pummel us in the midterms. It is absolutely true that Democrats do not have much to run on other than claims about abortion extremism. Like they don't have a good economy. Foreign policy does is not going well. There's no border. Like the energy situation is dire. All things are a direct result of their unified control of government. But I think what people need to think about is when you're dealing with this level of campaign warfare, you have to at least fight to a draw. That when you don't fight at all, you just seed the ground completely. When you're not actually making a case for why you care about unborn children and their mothers and family formation, you're just letting them completely control it. When you show that you're scared to talk about it because these people are so oppressive, you help them win. And so you have to do something to fight back proactively with your own message. And I think there's a lot of debate to be had about the weakness of this bill versus what should be accomplished or, you know, things like that. But you have to give candidates some way to force Democrats to talk about the reality of their position, which they have voted for with almost unanimity. There was one House member and one Senate member who didn't vote for their most recent legislation that would have 
kept all Americans from having any say in abortion restrictions that would have violated conscience protections, that would go to war with maternal care centers. I mean, these are really, really radical positions. And the only way to get them to talk about it is to have something to push back on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, they voted against the uh, Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act or whatever it was called. I mean, these are radical positions that they never have to explain. The media never makes them do it. Even yesterday, I saw all these reporters writing, you know, Lindsey Graham's abortion, federal abortion ban rather than, uh, you know, 15 week abortion ban. They do that for a reason. And it's very hard to it's a heavy lift. I'm not going to lie. But I mean, you have to do something. And I think this is a good idea. I know I saw, you know, a lot of conservatives, Andy McCarthy, others saying how terrible and cowardly or whatever words he used this was because it's a state issue, this and that. I'm actually not sold that it's a federal on, on, on it being a federal issue as far as law. I don't know if that's the best way forward, but this is not going to pass. This is just to, 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 to even have, you know, try to force them to have a real debate. Just one quick thing on, on something else you said. Since the 1960s, probably since Barry Goldwater, probably before then, conservatives are always told that if they are actually socially conservative or conservative on economic issues or you know free market, from my perspective, they're going to lose elections. And yet every Republican president from Reagan on, I believe, was Bush one uh, pro-life also win elections. I constantly the narrative now is that. Dobbs is killing Republicans across the country. And yet when I ask these people to give me a single race where abortion has turned polls, they can't offer me one race. What Senate race is Dr. Oz losing over abortion? I mean, he's gaining ground, right? So, Yeah, actually, that's a good point. I mean, I can't think of a single race. And- I don't know, but I could see, I mean, here's the deal. With a red wave, which is the historic norm that the out party has significant gains, and that's even if you're not having a horrifically run administration like Democrats are dealing with right now, you would expect to see, you know, a certain number of gains plus an opportunity to grab even more seats. And I think Republicans are still in this like old model of thinking that white suburban women are gettable and they're not thinking about like, like Hispanic voters in Texas or um, this sort of new Republican party that is much more diverse and multiracial and working class. And so I could definitely see some of these suburban races that Republicans thought they might be able to get back, not being able to be got back as suburban white women get more and more radical to the left. But I think they should also be thinking about how being in the majority position on abortion, like as I noted, it's like three out of four Americans either want abortion illegal or some limit some limit of some kind on abortion. So that's a very big group of people. By being more appealing to that group of people, they can also pick up some wins in races, in districts that they never would have even imagined they could have a few years I mean, ago. I think that's right. His, there are his, you know, the Hispanic move, if it's, if it's really happening, and I think it is towards Republicans, has a lot to do with social... Not even being a social conservative, just being normal about things like gender or, you know, abortion radicalism or things or like opposing of the racism of critical race theory. Exactly. So, I mean, but but, you know, so but but I think Republicans often buy into this idea that they they always have to be on defense on these social issues, which is just doesn't make sense for me. It's the same thing with guns. I'm always hearing how the gun issue is killing Republicans. And then when I ask people to show me a race where a person who is who has embraced the Second Amendment is losing because of that issue. They can never do it. So I, 
you know, I just don't I don't buy this idea. I think there are a lot of people on the right who are excited about Dobbs being overturned. I think it's probably something of a wash. Okay. Also, though, you had a great column where you the headline was um, overturning Roe was worth it or Dobbs was worth it. Like, even if you accept this idea that it's supposedly bad for Republicans, that they're not going to win, it would be worth it to have Roe overturned because of how damaging that decision has been to the republic right now i get that political columnists obviously are concerned with the politics of, of, of what's going on in dc and elsewhere i am i consider myself a political columnist but i am much more interested in issues and things like that so i if they lost every seat i and, and roe was overturned it still would be worth it it right. is a principled issue you are killing viable children and other you know unborn babies by the tens of thousands every year and if you can't oppose that as a you know a social conservative completely without reservations then you're really in worthless right so i mean listen some there are some tactical things you might want to embrace but it, as a principle if you're not excited about dobbs being overturned i mean roe being overturned then you're not really a social conservative and you know what makes me mad is i'm not a, i'm an atheist why am i like why aren't we why don't we see social conservatives i'm not saying you know plenty of them are yourself others but many of these columnists many of these politicians being such wimps on an issue that is such a slam dunk in my view. I just don't really even, even understand it, but maybe I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just not, not, not understanding the full complexity of the American people, but every poll for me shows that there's only a small segment of people who want no um, restrictions at all on abortion. I don't even believe they believe that. I think they just say that because they're Democrats, but the vast majority of Americans have far more complicated ideas about abortion. And yet, you know, we act like, you know, we're always on the defensive. It doesn't make sense to me. And this has been the case, of course, forever. Frankly, I think a lot of these people are upset that Roe was overturned. They like it. It's a theoretical pro-life issues as theoretical that they never actually have to take a vote on it. They want to raise money off of it, but they don't actually want to do anything. And that's just, uh, yeah, not surprising, I guess. I just also think if there ever were a year for Roe to be overturned and deal with the blowback from the radicals in the media, this has got to be the year. Like it's actually quite providential that it happened this year and not like 2020 or really any previous. I mean, well, I mean I'm happy you brought that up. There's this economist like pollster guy at the economist magazine who's just at this leftist. He's oh, but he blows up a, uh, he blows up a, a, a graph and he's like, this was one of the worst cheering on Dobbs was one of the worst decisions, you know, in recent me political memory. And and he shows the, you know, the graph line going up. But when you look at the, you know, you look at the, the graph, it's just a two point swing in the midterm election of 2022. If that's the political price to pay for uh, Roe being overturned, that's a bargain. I mean, that's a historical bargain. When I was a kid, when I grew up, when I got into writing about politics, I never imagined, not for a second, that Roe would ever be overturned. And if I would have imagined it, I would have thought that there would have been riots in the street. I mean, you know, Roe is basically the only decision probably that like the majority of Americans can name, the only Supreme Court decision. It was, you know, it was something that we learned in school. It was something that was, you know, culturally always celebrated. So for it to be overturned is is historic, and the blowback has been unimpressive. I do want to point out one thing that was said at the SBA list by Frank Cannon, who works at SBA list, is like a really amazing, uh, like political strategist, and he was talking about when Plessy v. Ferguson was decided and how many decades it took for Brown v. Board of Education, which, well. 
I love the result of Brown v. Board of Education. There are actually major problems with how they decided that, that kind of set the court on a bad path of legislating versus just ruling on the law. But the point being that when Brown v. Board of Education was handed down, um, was decided, there was an actual political strategy built around opposing that. So Democrats actually had political success in fighting Brown v. Board of Education. And then he was also pointing out that when Loving came out, which was the decision regarding interracial marriage in Virginia, that only 4% of white Americans apparently supported it. And so when people say like, oh, this is you know a political killer or whatnot, A, they're, they're usually wrong, but they're also usually just thinking in a very short-term way and not thinking about longer term political victories and how those are built around positive cases for positive things. Well, the polling on, on Roe is terrible as usual. They'll ask people, do you believe Roe v. Wade should be overturned? That's a useless question. What, what, what did they study the, 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 the uh, constitutional, uh, you know, dimensions of the of the opinion no they just hear that you know they want things to stay the same but when you ask people do you think states should should be in charge of their own abortion policy i bet you that those polls would be through the roof yes i you know if you ask people do you believe in restrictions they say yes they don't know what roe v wade is you know so and i think you're right it happened with gay marriage as well frankly i mean as soon as it became normalized by the court you know people were like well it's an inevitable you know it's happening and 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 that's it i you know you, you you probably disagree with that you know with gay marriage obviously but um it is quite popular now right among people and and that was a quick change it used to be quite unpopular when i started writing columns in the early 2000s like 67% of americans were against gay marriage and then it it, it flipped really quickly so it should be the same, you know, for it could be the same for abortion. I yeah, I mean, we're dealing with some of the changes as a result of redefining marriage to include same sex couples. I don't think that story is anywhere near approaching its conclusion. And the people who were concerned about how redefining marriage to encompass same sex couples are fairly well vindicated and how that has led to all sorts of other uh, problems in the law, confusion, lack of protections for religious liberty. I think what's interesting is when Roe was handed down, it wasn't, you know, it was slightly controversial. Um, it became as people began to think through what abortion was, what it meant, how it was not helping women, it became a massive movement to overturn row and to protect unborn children. So it doesn't always work that just because a decision is handed down that that means that people will always become happier with it or happier with what the result is. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, in the 70s, it, just takes, it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. In the 70s, Roe was one of the major things that propelled the, the social conservative movement that helped Republican, you know, change, you know, help Republicans win, you know, in 80 and, 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 and moving forward that and the restrictions on guns that changed people's minds and also the sort of stagnant ec economy we had. And those were basically the three things that drove, drove Actually, those people to fuse together. Uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass wrote a dissertation on another Supreme Court decision that had monumental effect on the Republican Party, which was the school prayer decision in the 60s, which was far and away the most controversial decision 
and the most politically uh, like activizing, act, activating, my gosh, words, um, decision. I like that word. If it's not a word, it should be. It's a really, he should publish, I, I've read it, but he should publish this dissertation. It's very good. Anyway. Yeah. School prayer was like when I, even when I was growing up school prayer, that was still a big debate. And, and I forget the name of the decision we recently had about that football coach in, uh, was it Oregon or Washington who Washington, Washington. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a wonderful decision. Hopefully the Yeshiva university decision will, will help as well. One last thing that you did mention on gate, you know, I, I have, I was pro gay marriage, not, not in the way that it was handed down in the early two thousands as a columnist. And I was, you know, I took a lot of heat from that, from conservatives around there. And in many ways, they were right. Now, I still I just don't think it's the government's business to be involved in that sort of thing. But what it what it what the what David, the, the, what the Supreme Court, well, let me just this... business to be involved in marriage. Really? Correct. Yeah, correct. That's, that's like maybe you wish the clouds were all purple and pink, Com- but that's I'm, not it's reality. A completely... government, not only is the government involved in marriage, it actually is a public contract, so they should be involved in regulating it. Uh, it, because it could be, a, it also, could be, a, it could be a contract between two people. It doesn't have to be a contract defined by government. David, listen. If if I have my relationship, marriage is the only relationship between people that, if it's operating naturally, will result in children, and children are, you know, things that people that need that need. Um, a lot of support and no other relationship between voluntary people results in that in in the production of children. I mean, marriage is another way of saying sex between a man and a woman and sex between man and a woman results in children. And that's why it's of interest to the broader community and to government. And also because you can't just say like, oh, whoopsie, we made a baby and now we're both going to check out of here. I mean, you have obligations to. Yeah, I, I don't I, I, I sign contracts all the time that the government doesn't define how they have to be uh, ordered and yet i have to i have to uh take on those obligations and those commitments and i can't just walk away from them i'm not saying so wh- how am i saying you should be able to walk away from children Family government is the building block of society okay. here's the thing if you're going to have government at all the very first thing should be probably related to so then now you have government involved and they say that gay marriage is a real marriage and then you have to live with that fact right well yeah but okay uh, but so pointing out that the people who are concerned about it concerned about how saying that sexual distinctions are not an important part of marriage would actually change our understanding of marriage period it changes our understanding of relationships with children that are the result of marriage it changes like our entire understanding of what sex is um it leads to a lot of confusion and i think because the, the government says the, something it changes your conception of what marriage is not my literally conception literally just a few minutes ago said that once the ruling came down it kind of like gave this um, yeah, correct. But I'm just saying you resulted in a change of public opinion. I you and I are like autistic libertarian type people. We don't maybe aren't as affected by what the government says or what what the Supreme Court says. But absolutely, it affects what people's conception is of norms and morality and all those things. And of you course, know, it you does. know, you know, what's funny about this. I literally had a different point to make. And now I don't remember that. point. <laughs> so I don't know what I was going to say. But uh, um I don't know what I was going to say, but listen, I know that it's just a libertarian dream, basically, to say the government won't be involved in marriage. But my point, oh, here it is. So my point was what I did not foresee was the the use of, of, of that change, you know, to 
under my religious liberty in ways that I just I can't believe happened. Right. So that doesn't mean I think I, I'm wrong on the principle initially, but I am wrong about the fallout. And I think, you know, so I don't know how to fix that problem. I don't think we're ever going back. I would rather have gay marriage legislated than have it decreed by a court. So if people vote for it now, I think it's I think it's a done deal anyway, and they should do it. But and it's better than the court decreeing it. So I don't know. I don't know what my point exactly was. Something I will just point out there's legislation moving through the Senate right now to codify some of these redefinitions of marriage and like thousands of religious groups are pleading with senators not to vote for it because of how much trauma it would cause them related to their freedom to practice their religion. And we have had federal judges saying um, that if you are receiving nonprofit status from the government, that's the equivalent of government support and that therefore they can meddle in the administration of your organization. So these are very, that those decisions happened this year. The activist left is coming hard for church groups. They're coming hard on conscience protections. And it's it's a really hostile environment for religious. Liberty. I mean, without so, the Supreme Court. Thanks for causing a, that. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had enough power to cause that. Um, if, if people had listened to me and just extracted government from the entire business of mm. marriage, none of this would have happened. I do um, want to say I had been a little bit despairing. One of the things I was happy about going to this SBA list thing, it was just a massive celebration of. SBA is Susan B. Anthony, just so. Uh, Susan B. Anthony list, one of the early feminists and a big prominent pro-lifer. And this group supports political uh, work. Uh, related to the pro-life cause. So there was a celebration. And it was it was just like lots of cheering. There was also a remembrance of all the people who had worked so hard over 50 years to get the country to this point, many of whom you know had died because it took so long. And it was just a nice thing, but it was also good to just have something to celebrate because it seems like things have been very bad in the country. And I was actually despairing, which I don't normally do, Upon learning some of the revelations that came out in a recent court filing from Durham, the guy who's ostensibly investigating the Russia collusion hoax. And one of the things that came out in this filing, uh, there's this guy, Igor Danchenko, who's been charged with crimes related to the hoax. And the filing noted that in 2017, the FBI after interviewing Danchenko, put him on the payroll as a confidential human source, which enabled him to be protected from oversight, but also enabled him to continue to run the operation like with the FBI, and that he continued on as a paid informant of the FBI through just like weeks before the 2020, ele- 2020 election. This is after the inspector general had revealed all the problems with his reporting like a year prior. And also years after anyone with a brain knew there were problems with his so-called reporting. Wait, so just to take a step back for people who are confused by all this, including me, he was a person who had contributed to the Steele dossier, which essentially the FBI used to spy on the the opposition party 
going all the way back to 2015, 16. Okay. So we usually call the dossier the Steele dossier. That's because there was this guy who the media claimed was like a James Bond type spy. He was so amazing, named Christopher Steele, and he had deep knowledge of Russia, and he was great, and he was this British intel officer, and you couldn't question him. And it turned out that he had gotten paid money to put together like a, a political it put up put together opposition research, but it was like remarkably bad oppo. You and I receive a lot of oppo as I assume you do as political reporters. You get a lot of dirt that people share with you. Usually you can kind of like run it down pretty quickly and see what it's based on. This was just like fantasies and rumors. And the guy who basically wrote it, the guy who basically gathered all the supposed intel was a man named Igor Danchenko. Now he had come under FBI suspicion. He's like a apparently, you know, allegedly a notorious drunk and um, unreliable person, but who worked at like left-wing think tanks related to Russia. He'd come under FBI observation 10 years ago because he had been talking to people about how maybe they could trade secrets with Russia. So an actual Russian agent type who's in the U.S., who the FBI knew he had these problems, and when they begin investigating the dossier, they bring him in. He's making no sense. His stories are not well corroborated. Um, he's making claims about people saying things that are so easy to run down. And I want to just point out, I do not, I don't believe anyone any day of the week. If they, you know, the, there's the um, maxim in journalism that if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Mm-hmm. That goes like triple for me with Russians. I was in Russia weeks after the dossier became public. Where are you? I don't remember this. Now, you were in Russia, huh? I wouldn't have admitted that. Now, you know what's going to happen now online. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I I mean, I actually didn't talk about it. I was was with a very, um, like, left, not left-wing group, but Carnegie um, always does these trips with a new administration where they kind of just, like, have Americans go over and talk to Russians in academia and politics about the incoming administration. Well, they had reasonably planned the whole trip around a Hillary Clinton victory. So for months, people were planning, they had a different group of people. And so all of a sudden Trump wins and they're like, what do we do? We need like, we need these people to come. And so, um, and they always have like a journalist come. And so I being one of the few journalists who, as you know, cause you still haven't paid up your bet, um, had a better understanding of what was happening in the country with the potential of a uh, Trump victory. I went, but because of the Russia hysteria, I didn't, you know, reasonably didn't um, yeah. want that to be, you know, part of like left-wing corporate media's latest attack. But it was actually with a le- liberal group is what I'm saying. Anyway, oh. I'm but there. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, 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 go on. I want to hear the rest of this. I'm there. I was not staying at the Ritz, but I was staying at the hotel, like right next to the Ritz and got to talk to different people in the, you know, in the hotel industry or whatever. And we were having meetings with academics and political activists and things like that. And everyone was joking about it. They said, yeah, they never, nobody here believes that that happened. Like that's funny and we might tease about it, but we certainly don't believe it happened. And I was thinking as I was reading through this Durham filing yesterday, I was like, I did better work than the FBI by simply asking some people some questions. And we got to meet with this one government official who was alleged to have met 
with Michael Cohen in Prague. Hmm. So I asked him, did you meet with Michael Cohen in Prague? And he's like, I've been to Prague, but I haven't been to Prague in many years. And I was certainly not in Prague on those dates. And I don't know where that came from. And again, I'm not saying that because he says this, that it's true. But once again, I did better work than the FBI in running down the dossier details. I hate to break this to you, but I don't think you did a better job than the FBI. I think the FBI did exactly the job it wanted to do in completely undermining a presidency that they didn't want to happen. I was screaming about this yesterday. And what you just said is exactly what Mark Hemingway said when I was like, just I was lamenting. I mean, it just seems crazy. Yes. He said, no, they did it. They did exactly what they planned to do. But they also brought in Igor Danchenko, actual Russian agent. So remember, the whole claim is that Donald Trump stole the 2016 election by colluding with Russian agents. Hillary was paying Russian agents who then also got paid by the FBI um, to spread Russian disinformation in a way that harmed the country like unquestionably harmed the country. And by the way, nobody cares. Like this is what's making me despair. This is horrific malfeasance, like horrific corruption. I don't hear a single Republican out there saying anything about it. They have fully weaponized and activated the Department of Justice to run political purges. They're going after people for First Amendment protected activities with speech and assembly and press, and nobody is saying anything. And it's making, the the more they're not saying things, the more freaked out I'm getting. I don't understand why the Stalinification of our country isn't dominating every news show, every article, every conversation. And instead people are talking about like, polling in a race in Georgia or whatever. Like, who cares? This is so, such a threat, no? Yeah. I mean, I was going to maybe write about this. Uh, Mike Lindell, is that his name? The pillow guy? Yeah. Who was, uh, the FBI took, I guess they took his phone yesterday. I I just don't understand. He's a, he's a private citizen. He has thoughts. He has ideas. Maybe they're crazy ideas. I don't really care. I just don't understand how the FBI uh, can go after these people and, and, is it even a story in, in, in the news? I mean, no one's even talking about it. And he's is, one of many. I was getting like texts and calls from people who were deeply concerned. For some reason, the Mike Lindell thing took it to a new level for them in a way that the political raid of Mar-a-Lago was alarming to a lot of people, <laughs> understandably. Um, but I yeah, mean, I, I think there, like... there, there's a difference between the pretext of, of someone having, you know, classified information. Now I, I I agree with you mostly on, on all of that, but I'm just saying this is a private citizen who has, who rants and raves sometimes. And he sounds a little nutty and all that, but the idea that the FBI can just show up because you have crazy ideas and take your phone and make you, I don't, I don't even know what it's about because they don't tell you, we don't even know what it, what, what it's about. We don't even know what, what is, what kind of criminality could he have been involved in? He's allowed to say the election's stolen. That's not an illegal thing to do. Well, I'd also love to find out what would cause them to go after him, but not say Hillary Clinton and the entire Democrat Party for fomenting the lie, willfully fomenting the lie that Donald Trump was a traitor who had colluded with Russia to steal the election. So I can't imagine, like, I... There are things that could be lawbreaking, like in either of those examples, but what I've heard thus far does not support it for the people who were challenging the 2020 election. You know, I think a good way to think about it, too, is you might not like that Stacey Abrams denies 
that she lost her governor's race four years ago. But I haven't really heard anybody criticize it in corporate media, much less say that she should be arrested for it, that she shouldn't be allowed to run for office now, or that her record should be seized. And she was very actively involved in election meddling in Georgia. I wrote about it in my book, Rigged, on the 2020 election, which goes through some of the operations that she was involved with to destabilize the integrity of that election. Um, I would just point out too, I don't actually agree with a lot of the people on the right who have outlandish ideas about conspiracies related to the 2020 election or other elections. I wrote a very well substantiated and well-documented case for what actually happened. Um, but I don't think that people who disagree with me or who have different ideas on it, whether they're on the left or on the right, should be prosecuted for it or have their lives destroyed. Yeah. I mean, when you say rigged, you're you're not always talking about illegalities. You're talking about a media that's corrupt, right? Or you're talking about other, some of them are illegalities, but some of them is just baseline corruption, maybe. I, mean, I would recommend people read the book. Yes, I go through it all. It's everything from like tech companies controlling algorithms in a way that moves millions of votes or censorship yeah. schemes, um, the way our corporate media invented fake stories or pushed fake stories or suppressed real stories, but also about the massive change to election laws, which was a coordinated operation. Sometimes those were done legally and constitutionally, and sometimes they weren't. You know, our constitution says state legislatures should handle election administration. And so sometimes it did it that way. And sometimes and frequently it didn't go that way. Um, also, the private takeover of government election offices to run political get out the vote operations. And what I mean by that is they gave money in a targeted way to Democrat areas of swing states to run get out the vote operations. So the get out the vote operations themselves might not look political, registering people to vote, making them vote, telling them to vote, helping them cure their ballots, helping count those ballots, all that kind of stuff might not seem partisan. But when you're focusing the funding in the blue areas of swing states, it absolutely has partisan effect sure. in a way that, again, destabilizes the integrity and, um, conf you know, it destabilizes like the confidence people have in elections. So it's a weird combination of legal and illegal. And I think rigged is a great way to describe it. The, the Federals so had a story about this happening in Milwaukee recently, correct? And well, the mayor yeah, so of Milwaukee. Yeah, the, the, a lot of states have banned the private takeover of government election offices. But in Milwaukee, they just announced that they had a massive grant to get out the vote in Milwaukee. And the reason why that's important is like it's not happening in the other parts of the state. It's happening in a Democrat stronghold. So when you get a lot of resources to bear, I mean, political parties themselves spend a lot of money on get out the vote operations and they do it in a targeted way because they want to help out. Their Which own is fine, right? Party. And that's totally fine Yeah. Um, when you're doing it. Under the rubric of the government office, that's sure. where it gets really sketchy. And also the legislator, legislature in Wisconsin voted to ban this. The governor vetoed it, knowing how important these private funds are to Democrat operations. Um, and Wisconsin so is an incredibly important state when you're talking about the presidential election, for sure. But just in general, it's a swing. But state. it's also important. They have a Senate race going on right, right now. And Milwaukee, I also write about this in the book, has a long history of corruption in its voting practices. And they even had, the Wall Street Journal had reported on this, they had a crime unit that was focused on election issues that got shut down because they were doing too good of a job going after people who were 
uh, fraudulently filing to vote or otherwise engaged in illegal activity. Whenever, whenever one of these Republicans, like Giuliani or whoever, you know, the FBI shows up, takes their phone, I always think that every single FISA uh, warrant application was lied. You know, people lied and fabricated information to spy on the political party they didn't like, which and not a single person, I believe, has been punished for that in any real way. And I mean, that is one of the like, guys who was involved in that, who fabricated evidence to secure a wiretap. He briefly lost his uh, like bar certification. Yeah, but he got, he got it back. Yeah, he got it back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they really took it very seriously. I, on that note, to flip back to this Durham filing this week, another thing I found very interesting is that it talked about how Durham wanted this guy named Sergey Milian to testify against Igor Danchenko. And Igor had falsely claimed that he'd gotten dirt from Sergey Milian, when in fact, he'd never encountered him in his life. And Sergey knows this. He actually has talked about it somewhat publicly. And he's refusing to testify because he's terrified of the FBI and I don't think anyone in the world could blame him. Like he knows the FBI is willing to lie to achieve its ends. He he knows that they were involved in leaks that harmed him and his family. He says that while he was living in the U.S., he received credible death threats to him and his family. And he's terrified of coming back. And I'm thinking he's watching from he's in an undisclosed global lo- location But imagine you're watching what's happening in the U.S. and they're literally raiding Mar-a-Lago over a paperwork dispute. Are you going to come back and testify to help out the Department of Justice? I highly, I mean, I can't blame him at all. But this shows how like the corruption of our FBI, the corruption of our Department of Justice is leading to greater corruption because people are afraid to testify in a way that might hold people accountable. It's well, there's no accountability. So that's why I think that that just gives others who are very politically and ideologically motivated within government the freedom to do what they want. They know there's really no repercussions for what they do or the chances are incredibly slim. But I will go back to one thing you said. Why isn't anyone yelling about this? Why aren't politicians talking about it? I think it's pure risk aversion. A, they, they're they scared that something might come of it and then it's going to backfire on them. So you know everything tells them not to get involved. And B, I have to say for myself as well, like it's complicated, right? It's difficult to explain what's going on to people. Like two years ago, I was like, yeah, this is just all corrupt. I don't even care what else happens. I know this is just corrupt, right? And I can't keep up with all of this. There are too many things going on. So, and that's, they rely on that to some extent, right? I mean, that 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 is just um, very thorny, complicated. And also there isn't much transparency. It's always just coming out in drips and drabs. It's hard to keep track of. I do think a bad memory is a good thing for any relationship. So it's probably good that Americans forget all of the malfeasance over the years from their Department of Justice. But for me, it's just gotten so bad. I can't. The problem is the same people are there. Like most of the same people are still there. Not only can I not forget, I'm now questioning everything. So when they're like, you know, you, I go back and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's who the Department of Justice said this, or the FBI said this about him. And then I'm like, and that probably isn't even true. Like none so, of it is probably true. We've spoken about this. We've spoken about this right. before. But in 2015, Trump would say, you know, Obama wired me, and I'd be like, this nut. I cannot believe he's going to be president. You know, he's president. Whatever. Um, and then I start to believe, like maybe it could be. You know, maybe he's right. Maybe he's just sort of being 
simplistic about it, but it's 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 going to turn out to be true. Now I'm like, anything you say, I believe is probably true. Like any conspiracy I hear, I'm like, this probably happened. Like Martians had probably landed in, in you know, New Mexico. Like it seems reasonable. I do, David, I want to tell a really quick story. And I know we got to, we got to go, but um, I learned this lesson about maybe not assuming everything Trump said was a lie very early when he called me and said I was difficult to get a hold of. And I just was like, this guy will lie about anything, right? Like, you're the president of the United States. You can get a hold of anybody you want to at any point in time. And then um, the next day I was talking to some people at Fox and I said, guess who called me last night? And they were like, Donald Trump. I was like, yeah. And they were like, yeah, he's been trying to get your number, but we don't give out numbers here at Fox. So the president? Then I was like, you couldn't let me know, right? You could have just and called then, the FBI or CIA and gotten your number. Um, and then also we apparently have a phone number associated with the Federalist, but we check it like, you know, once every two months. And so, yeah, two months later we look and it was like tons of calls from the White House saying like, <laughs> we really are trying to get a hold. And I was like, oh, I should not have doubted him when he said that. You know, I interviewed him once many years ago. I don't know if you know this. Well, first of all, let me go back even further quickly. At the Denver Post, when I was there years and years ago, I wrote a whole, what I thought was a pretty funny column about him becoming president and how crazy it would be. <laughs> that, like, because he was like talking about running, I don't know, you know, one of his early runs, like some independent run or some third party. Right. So I made fun of that. And then I interviewed him. I'm like, I hope he doesn't Google my name because I like really mocked him. But I interviewed him when I was editor at Human Events. And uh, he didn't know what he was talking. It was like some complicated spending bill. And he obviously didn't care. And I'm like, this guy's never, never going to be president. Mm -hmm. And that colored my view in 2015. The reason I lost a bet to you um, mm -hmm. that I have not yet repaid. But anyway, yeah, the yeah, world has changed a lot since 2015. I don't know if people realize just how much, you know. It's pretty crazy. Okay, so um, watching anything? Yes. Anything? Okay. I am. I'll do it quick. Watching Alone, have you ever heard of the show? No. They take like five, six people, they drop them by themselves in in like the Arctic Circle or in like, you know, in the middle of British Columbia somewhere where there are grizzly bears all over the place and whoever, so they're each alone in their own areas and they have to survive. They have nothing. This isn't like Survivor, you know, like fake survival where they give you rice. They have nothing except 10 items. So they're like hunting. They're So basically the loot, people lose because they're just starving and they have to take them out. Like the, the medical team has to take them out. They're like, you're, you're going to do permanent damage. <laughs> so the person who can like catch a bit, you know, hunt down a bear or deer usually survives. They try to fish. Yeah. It's crazy. There's many seasons. They have like, we should have John alone. Davidson do this show. They're in a lab. They have Alaska, I believe. So yeah, it's really, oh, yeah, he would do great. I think he'd do well. Yeah. So they're, they're like trying to snare rabbits. They'll eat anything. Like it's gross. But, and then they lose like 60 pounds, you know, and then they're like, we have to take you Which out. Which of our female staff do you think would nail this show? Who I would literally, Joy Pullman with her children, you could drop her there and she'd survive because that she's like the toughest person I know. Like she's <laughs> the one person I would never want to mess with. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, sometimes I think about like who would I want in a bar fight or Joy Pullman. on staff. Wait, I, um, I actually would take Jordan. Jordan Boyd. Yeah, I don't know Jordan that well. Yeah. Also, Kylie's pretty scrappy. <laughs> um, yeah, Jordan. Jordan knows her way around. I I don't think she like goes to bars, but if she did, she would be great in a bar fight. All right. Anyway. I have not. You know, I'm I'm 
I was away for a few years and she's one of our newer staffers. So I don't know her that well. Yeah. I mean, I met her. She's wonderful and work with her. Yeah. But, uh, I've not okay. seen her. I've not seen her fight yet. So I can't speak to that part of it. Uh, do you want to go? Or I have a couple more things quickly. Um, I've been watching. Nope. Or why don't you go? I'm not watching anything. I've been traveling a lot. Um, I, our family's watching the office, which I find very funny. Oh yeah. Um, but other than that, nothing. And I am going to an Afghan wigs concert tonight, which I'm very excited about. They were one of the sub pop bands I didn't get into in the early nineties, but I just, they weren't like heavy enough for me at the time. But then I sort of forgot about them. So maybe I will revisit because you yeah, seem to well, be a pretty big fan. I'll let you know how it goes. I liked them a lot in the nineties. I haven't really done a ton of listening to them lately. I'm not totally familiar with their latest album but i'm excited to see them i have also been watching the uh house of dragons which is like the prequel to um what is it called? game of thrones it is uh pretty boring so far and not only because there isn't any incest porn as you like to say <laughs> but uh it's just not that great and I, i'm a fan of game of thrones i wish it wasn't as uh horny but uh yeah, story storylines are pretty good. Yeah. And I'm also watching the um Lord of the Rings prequel called Rings of Power. And I really I'm trying my best to like it. I just I feel like I've been rereading Lord of the Rings recently and oh, books good. about Tolkien. Yeah, I just I don't know. I got interested in it again. And um I just feel that the 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 writers of the show do not understand Tolkien at all, do not understand where he came, the you know, Christianity, where he came from, the ideas, you know, like when, it, you know, the, the main, I won't give it away, but one of the characters is essentially bent on revenge, you know, which is very unchristian and not part of Lord of the Rings in any kind of real way. Only the bad guys want revenge, right? Yes. Um, good people do not want violence. They're pulled into violence. They're good people. They're defending their homelands. They're defending their families, things like that. So I, I am not liking it, but uh, it just looks like a Marvel movie kind of, but I'm going to keep giving it a shot because I don't know, there's nothing else on. Um, that's it. So you haven't been watching, you've been traveling all across the country. I've been watching a little bit of Top Chef, which I think I complained about last week. Yeah. And I just, the whole point of that show should be that it's based on merit. Every time they're talking about how oppressed they are or how intersectional they are, it's making me not want to watch anymore. And it already took me a lot like I'm very delayed in watching the episode, the season I'm watching now, because I was so annoyed, so, so annoyed with the wokeness of the previous. Yeah, I, I quit that show a few seasons ago because of that. Can't take uh, Padma, Padma Lakashimi anymore at all. And she's so pretty, though. She is. She's a very beautiful woman. And Actually, uh, have I asked you? I think I have asked you about this. What about Gail Simmons? I like her. I used to like her. I haven't seen her in a while. She's just very straightforward, merit-based. So pretty. And every time I see her, I'm like, oh, she's so pretty. And Mark is like, uh, she's okay. Here's the thing. When you see people on TV, they're usually next to very pretty people or very attractive people. So a normal person who if you saw in real life, you'd be like, this is a gorgeous person, might not seem as pretty on TV when they're next to a model like Padma Lakashimi. I actually, I actually prefer Gail. I think Padma is beautiful, but Gail has just this. I mean, she's got a great body. She's got great looks. I'm not and I just want everyone, everyone else to agree. Sorry. Conversation's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I don't go down in that direction publicly. So, okay, uh, great. Yeah, I wanted to, I always forget. So, I'm going to say, you know, if you want to email the show, you can email us at radio at thefederalist.com. You can 
praise my television choices, which is seems to be the, what the majority of people do, and mock Molly's. <laughs> Other than that, please be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. We'll speak to you soon. 